In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Today, Jesus describes the cost of discipleship. In light of Luke's full gospel, Jesus makes it plain that following in his way comes at a cost. Being an apprentice in the way of Jesus, which is what it means to be a disciple, entails resources and a full-on commitment. And there's a reason this cost is worth paying. That's because at the heart of discipleship lies transformation through God's grace. At the core of discipleship lies transformation through the grace of God. Along the disciples' journey, we are changed, and we get a taste of the abundant life, the good life, the community worth joining that Jesus promises. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, sure, I can get on board with that sermon, but how did you get there from the gospel text that we just heard? So let's explore what Jesus has to say in today's text and, and investigate how it informs the cost of discipleship. On a first read, the word hate jumps off the page, and not in a good way. Is the king of love really telling us to hate father and mother and life itself? I don't think so. Translation and context shine some light here. For context, remember that especially in Luke's gospel, Jesus keeps on meeting crowds who are astounded at what he is doing. They come by the thousands to be healed, to hear his stories of God's reign, which are usually very particular. They're about farming and fishing and planting and dirt and life. What God is doing through Jesus is astonishing. So how would his listeners have understood that word hate? Bible scholar Carolyn Sharp notes that it comes from the Greek word missio, which is used at least two ways in ancient traditions. The first is the strong dislike between two enemies. And that's probably what it signified for you as you heard it. For example, a toddler might, might mean it when she says, I hate broccoli. Or, more particularly, the Ukrainians might say, we hate what the Russians are doing. But the word also shows up in binary wisdom teachings, showing love and hate as our two options when responding to a binary choice. So what I'm trying to say is, sometimes words signify differently 2,000 years later in a different context, right? So for example, we read in the Psalms that the wicked hate discipline, justice, and knowledge, while the righteous hate wickedness and falsehood and gossip. Carolyn Sharp writes, Luke is not calling us to a strong disdain for kin and family and life, but he doesn't want us to allow something less valuable to displace something more valuable. The take-home from this gospel is get your priorities straight. Figure out what's important and let the the rest fall to the side. And so to be clear, Jesus is not asking anyone to hate anyone else, but he is talking about, he's making clear the cost of discipleship. Theologian Emily Towns has it this way, the cost of discipleship is not just becoming accumulators of new information about life and living it fully, or changing our behavior in regard to Jesus' teaching, the cost is engaging in a profoundly radical shift, an internal change toward the ethics of Jesus with every fiber of our being. 
Jesus reminds us that following him means that we cannot be shallow or partially committed believers. Those adjectives simply do not fit the noun. So where might we look for examples of saints who live so the adjectives do fit the noun, seeking to be fully committed, radically transformed believers? One of the ways transformation happens around here is through the ministry of Covenant Community. As many of you know, we are longtime partners with Covenant. It started with the night shelter, which I think was All Saints at its best. One of our core volunteers, I'm looking to the source, Venable Wilson, went, lost, went down to First Presbyterian to scope out their night shelter, and he came back to All Saints, and he said, we can't do this. There's no way. We have to do this. And I want you to hear the ways that God led us forward with a clear purpose, a sense of mission and values and identity, like the Jesus movement of the early church. And can you hear how that contrasts with the tight-knuckled desire to preserve the institution? At no point did we say, Man, how are we going to improve attendance on Sundays? Or how are we going to raise more money this year? Or how are we going to recreate the glorious past? Our neighbors needed help. It was as simple as that. What a great example of discipleship in action. Many of you were involved with this night shelter. I see some nodding heads. You remember cooking meals, and staying overnight with our guests, cleaning, welcoming, resting, and mutual friendship with folks who simply needed a place to sleep. Over time, you saw what Pastor Nadia Boltz-Weber saw, which is sometimes the most honest room in the church is not always the sanctuary where we're dressed in our Sunday finest and presenting at our best, but the parish halls and the church basements where the recovery groups are meeting. Over time, it became clear that a, a temporary shelter wasn't enough, and under the good and strong leadership of Martha Stern, God helped launch Covenant Community in 1980 and it has been a beacon of hope for the past 32 years. Gentlemen, I just want to say thank you for being here. God bless you on your journey. We are honored to worship with you. We are honored to share the block with you. And we're honored to be partners with you in ministry. Thank you for being here. Covenant serves men who are recovering sobriety and income and housing. And there's a saying, which I've learned from Covenants, really touched my life. Don't leave until the miracle happens. Do you need to hear that word of encouragement in your life today? Don't run from the struggle. Don't shy away from the hard parts of life. Don't you ever leave until the miracle happens. Now, there's a danger here, and even in the telling of this story, which is that we are a relatively affluent, mostly white congregation, hiring folk and friends with a separate governance structure to share space with us on this block. And we're asking them to wrestle with incredibly difficult, meaningful work, recovery from addiction and homelessness. And to the extent that we farm out this work or hold it at arm's length, that's simply throwing money at a problem avoiding relationships with our neighbors. But to the extent that we can be partners in ministry, fellow travelers on the journey of recovery, mindful of our own need for transformation and grace, 
then the transformation that God is doing in all our lives can then be a shared testimony. And that's why between services, we all made sandwiches together. It's just a simple reminder that we're doing our part to make the world a bit more fair and more kind and more beautiful. This week, I want to tell you about a conversation I had with one of the men of hope, which is the honorific, earned, desired, and absolutely worthwhile men of hope given to a covenant graduate. I've changed his name and his telling to protect his privacy, and I want you to know that I'm sharing his story here with his permission. Let's call him Carter. That's not his name, but we'll call him Carter. 25 years ago, Carter hit rock bottom. He had been an immensely talented athlete in track and football, coming up through a recently desegregated school. Even though multiple HBCU football coaches tried to offer him full scholarships, it was Stone Mountain in the 60s. He was a black boy in a mostly white school, and those coaches never told him about the scholarship offers. The cost and burden of college was too much, and over time he found himself angry and homeless and addicted. He remembers a night in jail, knowing that his family and friends were, were praying for him, thinking there has to be a better way. Then he remembers waking up on a park bench after a long, dark night and feeling terrible. It's about 7 o'clock in the morning. Just in front of him, some, some little kids were getting on a school bus. And one of those children got out of line and walked over to him. And the boy wasn't scared. Probably should have been, but he wasn't. And he looked Carter in the eyes and said, Don't worry, man. Everything's going to be all right. You are going to be all right. 25 years later, telling that story, we both teared up and paused. That little boy was brave like a lion. He saw something in Carter that then Carter started to remember about himself. That little kid at the bus stop led him to his sobriety day, December 5th, 1997. He got clean in Covenant Community. He's made the choice to stay clean and sober every single day for 9,040 days as of today. And Jules Mitchell, who was the program director at the time, taught him how to manage his money, how to apply for jobs, how to keep a job. And Carter, the reason you have inspired me in, in my own journey to grow as a disciple, which is to say an apprentice in the way of Jesus, is that you have been so open about your need for grace. God transformed and is transforming your life. Your story is one of redemption, and you're not afraid to tell that good news. You never thought you would live to be this age. All your friends are dead. You never thought you'd have a job for this many years, or find stable housing, or contemplate retirement that you invested in and paid for. But you knew that God had a plan for your life, that there had to be a better way. You didn't know what that was going to be, but I wonder if part of your vocation is telling your story to inspire the rest of us to see our own need for transformation. See, I like to think I have it together. And I like to present that way for the outside world. But when it's quiet and nobody's around, I have deep fears and insecurities and ways that I hope God can change me for the better. But I feel like I can't show those. 
like I'm supposed to smile for the camera sometimes, you know? Carter, you don't do that. You talk about your need for grace, the joy of transformation that God has worked in your life. You tell your story. Here's the thing about being in ministry with our friends and colleagues at Covenant. We are all here, but for the grace of God. And if someone you know, or even your, you yourself, find yourself struggling with, it, with addiction, it's not a moral failing, it's a mental health disorder. And we can help you. There are resources here on this block. You can speak to anyone of the clergy or anyone at Covenant. We can help you get the help you need to get clean and sober. It doesn't have to be a deep and dark, dark and dirty secret. It can be a part of your story of transformation too. And so whether we find ourselves in recovery or seeking other kinds of change, you and I are being transformed. And that grace lies at the center of the gospel announcement. In Christ, our past need not define our future. In Christ, our past need not define our future. None of us is the sum of the worst things we've ever done, but God loves and sees and knows what still could be for us. Like a man on a park bench getting spoken to with by a little child who saw something in him, God sees that in us too. So friends, we are not called to a discipleship that presents well or costs little. Jesus does not need a bunch of folks who have it all together. Jesus calls a ragtag bunch of us, all saints and all sorts, available for grace to transform us, eager to be a new creation. Will you love the you you hide if I but call your name? Will you quell the fear inside and never be the same? Will you use the faith you found to reshape the world around? The song move and live and grow.